Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. I am learning that there is a third way in relationships too. Now, considering I've done a shit ton of work on consciousness and divine masculine and everything, that it's surprising for me to even say that out loud. And that third way for being a man in a relationship is through the heart. That's what I'm learning. And so today's episode is about being a man. It is about being a man in intimate relationships. And for the sake of this and the guests, we are referring using heteronormative terms. Um, if you have a different identity, then certainly adjust to how, what feels right for you. Um, I'm joined today by a new friend, and, but an instant friend, someone that I met through my relationship coach, Farashta Ramsey, a prior guest on the show a couple weeks ago. I'm joined today by Daniel Singer. Daniel is also a relationship coach, and uh, Daniel and I have a similar background um, in that we both grew up in fundamentalist Christian groups and left them and became, and we're in the process in our midlife of becoming who we truly are. So welcome, Daniel. I almost called you Brother Daniel, but then that sounds a little bit Mormon, so... <laughs> Oh, that would have been really would have been really familiar. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me, Justin. I really appreciate it. Right. So, tell just for the context of what I said. Tell tell the listeners about your background. Yeah. So I um, grew up in Southern California, um, born in the seventies, and through a um, second marriage of my father, um, was introduced to the Mormon Church by my stepmother. At the age of seven, and uh, if you don't know anything about baptism and Mormonism, it, it happens at the age of eight, and so had to wait a little bit. But um, yeah, my family joined the church, and my father came along several years later. He was very apprehensive uh, to it at first, but um, yeah, did uh, almost 40 years of Mormonism and left wow. the church, res resigned about um, seven or eight years ago. Wow. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, there's something also it's interesting. It's I know I still have a lot of friends that are Mormons, and there's a there's like a whole it's like there's Sufi Mormons or you know, Kabbalist Mormons now. There's like where they're in the church and they still do the thing, but they are mystical. Um, and it's yeah. an interesting thing to see that where there's room for that in you know the structure of Mormonism. So Anyway, maybe that's another podcast for another time. So um, sure. you're a relationship coach. What does that mean? According to you, what does that mean to be a relationship coach? Yeah, thanks for asking. I am just, you know, I, I certified with the relationship school out of Boulder, Colorado a couple of years ago. And what that means to me is um, really, I'm as I'm doing my own relational work myself, I... Uh, have learned a certain, you know, set of school, uh, sorry, set of skills and uh, trainings and just ways of being that I think can help a lot of people in their relationships. It's it's fascinating to understand that so many people are struggling in relationships. People are not happy right. for them. You know, if we look at the divorce rate at 50%. It's been like that for a long time. Um, just from my readings and, and conversations with people, most people are just kind of going to surface level. And I think a lot of our female bodied people want their men to be more, you know, connected and deep and emotional. And, you know, you see in the dating apps, emotional uh, availability is the buzzword. And um, right. there's a big disconnect happening. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. 
I, I also see that within relationships, you know, longer term or committed relationships, marriages, that there is a sort of preventative or maybe that's not the right word. It's a, it's a, it's sort of like triage that things have gotten off track and you're trying to get them back on track. And then, and there's a time for that. And, you know, that Gaddis, Jason Gaddis, the, you know, the founder of the relationship school talks that, you know, conflict isn't the issue repair is that conflict is normal, but most of us yep. have never been coached on how to handle conflict. Um, and then I think eventually though, and this is why I love the concept of relationship coaching is that you, coaches are, are by their nature are taking, you know, they're closing the gap between where you're at and where you want to be. They help you close that gap. Yeah. And so it's less remedial. Um, I, I think there's something similar here with like a lot of like uh, tantricas or you know, tantric healers where it's not, this isn't about like getting more spark in your relationship. Sometimes it is. But also sometimes it's just to enhance or grow. And I, I believe very strongly, and I'm learning this again, back to my opening statement, you know, I'm learning that relationships, conscious relationships are a third way, is that relationships are ecosystems and ecosystems self-correct. They self-cleanse, menstrual cycles, hurricanes, fires, that's all self-cleansing. And that's a sign of growth. But if we're not equipped for it, and I have not been equipped for it, so in the spirit of transparency, I, I mentioned I have a relationship coach, Fareshta, who is also from the relationship school. And Virginia and I have a relationship coach who's working with both of us, uh, Julie, who's also from the relationship school. So um, all of that is we bring, and I say we in this case moving forward is really about men, um, is we bring our own blind spots into relationships. As well-intentioned as we are and sincere as we are, like, then we still have these spots that the relationship calls out or brings out. And it's my theory, like working theory, that in a conscious relationship, you you have the sort of the euphoria of connecting with your person, but then you go, then you then you have to leave the what leave that the the phase where the relationship is a container to heal your trauma. You got to leave that phase at some point, or you're not gonna grow. And so the first question, what's that? I was going to say, definitely. Yeah, you're spot on with that. Cool. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm a student of all this uh, and, or still, and I'm I'm learning so much. Um, so that leads to the first question, though, is it, it, when, when you think about yourself or other men that you know or men that you're coaching, what are some common blind spots we dudes have as it relates to relationships? Yeah, I would I would say the first one that comes to mind is just emotional honesty, right? Just the ability to be able to express feelings, um, express emotions. Um, and a lot of that, I think, comes from our conditioning, you know, the boy code, you know, William Polak's book that he wrote that, you know, um, tells us to be stoic, tells us to know all the answers, right? Tells us to be brave. Um, I think what happens is, you know, under, and, and and then, you know, this patriarchal control that, you know, that we've been conditioned to, to as well, right. That forces us to feel pain, but deny our feelings. Um, and unfortunately it's usually the partner that, you know, we lash out at, or that takes the brunt of our inability to really self-connect. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you touched on some that I thought of too, and you know, listeners know we don't we don't do show prep much here. We I send the questions and we, we answer live. Um, is definitely a blind spot for me has been power dynamics, mm -hmm. and 
so for, you know, using my 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 person and my relationship with Virginia is she pointed out once to me, you know, I'm an Enneagram eight. And she said, you can challenge, you can challenge everyone. You just can't challenge everyone the same way mm -hmm. uh, because there's a power dynamic. And so that was sort of like outward world stuff. I'm like, oh, that's smart. I get that. But it's true inside of the relationship. And there is a difference of power. You know, I am a, a straight white American male and a bunch of other labels. Yeah. She is an immigrant, a Latina, a woman. Um, so her social conditioning and the sense of power is different than my sense of power. So one of the biggest blind spots I see is men go into relationships with the great intention that you're, you're with your peer and not intellectually, spiritually, you're just your peer related to sort of uh, power dynamics. And you can kind of say or do whatever you want, because that's what you do with people that you have a, you know, that you, the, that you feel like you're equal to. Mm. And we're, we're not equal because of what you said, the, the patriarchal structures that, you know, the, the, the church dogma that remains of that, you know, the man is the head and the head uh, the head, the Christ head of the family and right. all that stuff. And I think that is far more pervasive, even in men that did not grow up around religion. Uh, maybe they grew up, you know, sort of East Coast secular or California secular. But the influence of that is still in there, uh, of power dynamics. And another blind spot that I see is, um, and I speak for myself here, is when you, and they're kind of related, when you have power, um, you don't really need to discern the difference between boundaries, expectations, standards, and wants. They're all the same thing when you're in charge, when you have power. When yeah. you don't have power or when you're trying to be equal, you truly want to try to create equity, then um, you have to be, get really fucking clear about what your boundaries are and standards are, and then realize that the ego's got a bunch of stuff it wants too, especially us men, especially us men that have anxious attachment tendencies. Mm -hmm. And that that idea of of not that's not being able to see that, I think is like a little, um, and maybe it's there by design. I'm not saying it's always bad. It's there by design to kind of deal with it, but it's a, it's like a, it's like a, a time activated little bomb that goes off, you know, a, a couple of years into the relationship so that you have to deal with that real, that, 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 that the fact that you have to have clear boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it feels like this kind of uh, trap that we get stuck in because unless, you know, the man becomes awakened to what's happening, what he's doing, you know, what this patriarchal conditioning was doing, what the boycott did, right? Then it's like, it's nothing, that's not going to change. The partner is just ultimately sad and, and frustrated. And, and then there's no more intimacy. And then things are starting, you know, there's just so much damage in the relationship and the connection that it's like your alternative is either, well, I've got to get out or I stay in this miserable relationship indefinitely. And this, I just succumb to what is right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think men, especially American men bring in that kind of this idea that your, your wife is your partner, but what we really mean is helper. Yeah. You know, there's that sort of sneaks in there, the sort of, sort of soft patriarchy of seeing your partner as a helper and that her job is twofold. One is to um, help you work out your shit 
Mm-hmm. And unless she signed up for it, that is not her job. Unless that's something that you ask, receive permission to do, which is great when that happens. I've done that so much to Virginia over the last two and a half years. Uh, I think I'm much more aware of it now of like, hey, I'm feeling this. Help me work it out. But I'm doing that like at 11 o'clock at night while she's trying to go to sleep. <laughs> which is, yeah. I say that now and like my dumb man brain is like, you know, that's where that comes from. The second one is um, the second kind of job of the helper, I think, is to get my needs met. Mm. And, and you know, that could be related to sex. It could be related to, um, you know, feeling better emotionally, uh, entertainment, you know, whatever. And it is nobody's job to meet your needs. I don't care what kind of relationship you're in. And I'm learning that the hard way. You know, it's like, when you have, in order for it to be a conscious relationship is that you can ask for what you need, but you cannot expect your needs to be met all the time by the person because, it, because as I think it was Bell Hook said, love liberates. As soon as you try to make it around like a set of expectations or rules of engagement, it change, it back comes that power dynamic. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I love. So share. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I, I love Bell Hook's work on you know, one of the very first things I read when I started my hero journey was just how patriarchy fucks up men. And it was like, oh, wow, this thing that all these, you know, female friends and women and and partners of mine were talking about, it was like, oh, this is affecting me in a huge way. Yeah. Yeah. And um, feminists point this out too, that the patriarchy is not sustained by men. It's sustained by women. It's men are not just doing their thing. It's not like, but women are a lot of women, especially in deeply patriarchal cultures like Latin America, as an example, or Africa, they it's perpetuated by by women and the way that they raise their sons and et cetera, et cetera. Again, different totally. topic. Totally. Um, yeah. So let's let's flip it around. You know, we we know we have blind spots, but what do you wish women understood more about their men? Like the man that there would not men in general. I mean, you, yeah. you can beat men if we want, but but overall, like. What do you wish women understood more about their men? Yeah, I I, I mentioned the boy code earlier, and I and this is what came up for me when when you mentioned when you asked this question. I, I really think that, yeah, like this is just fucked up, boys for for generations now, right? To be, so so, I guess where I'm going, like the relationship needs from the woman is going to be, you know, emotional security, right? And yet we were told not to express emotion. So they already, you know, there's this huge disconnect there, right? Um, we're told to have status, power, dominance, right? And and what is, you know, the typical guy is going to read into that, oh, I need to control. So I'm in charge, right? You attest earlier too, you know, Mormonism is all, I mean, the, the man is the head of the household, you know, the 12-year-old boy with the priesthood, has more power than a 95-year-old widow sitting on the pew in the front of the church, you know? And and so to have that conditioning over and over, right? Um, To not express any sort of vulnerability or to have dependency, you know? I mean, the whole dumb trope that guys don't ask for directions on road trips, you know? It's like, it's funny, but it's like, it's true because we don't want to be caught knowing that we don't know something, right? Um, So... But going back to what you said, it's not a woman's, you know, responsibility to, 
you know, do the work for the guy, right? And so I this this is where it's sticky for me. It's like we've had this conditioning and we're showing up in a in an intimate relationship, but we don't even know what intimacy needs or means. In fact, most of us just feel, you know, this was me. I thought intimacy just meant physical and sex. And then I'm really realizing on my journey that there's all these other times, kinds of, you know, intellectual intimacy, spiritual intimacy, right. emotional intimacy. Yeah, even platonic intimacy within an intimate relationship. Absolutely. You know, there's a, you know interesting. I, I, I hear what you're saying. I would add to that, that. I wish women understood more about their men. A couple of things. One is, is that we need you to have boundaries. You need to have your boundaries as well, because, you know, men in particular, just the way that we're wired. Most of us we're wired sort of like wired in the sense of sort of um, genetic wiring and the man brain, but also social conditioning towards like power vacuums. If there's a power vacuum, we fill it. We are to put it in a term Virginia uses a bit, we're colonizers. Well, you know, in our, our, there's an impulse to own and control, as you said. Absolutely. And so boundaries are those like, fuck knows. And that's how we learn. Um, and what I think we would want from our partners, our women partners is that you have boundaries. Now, one thing that I would say though, and I speak very firsthand to this, the boundaries are there to protect her from the darker parts of you. Mm. So she can have boundaries, but if you're not willing to own your shit of the darker parts of yourself, then those boundaries will just become, it'll be like Pakistan and India. It'll be like a, you know, 70 year border conflict. Um, and so that's one. Yeah. I'll use a Jason term here of the relationship blueprint. I want, I wish women knew their own relationship blueprint and they learn their man's relationship blueprint and the relationship blueprint, you, you went to the school. So maybe you should explain it. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically just, you know, what you like, what your family of origin was, what the dynamic was, um, you know, your attachment style, your parents way of, of their own relationship, right. That you grew up with. Right. Right. Slot those basics and, and the needs, you know, of security and safety and, and right. uh, yeah, and support. Yeah. And, and I think the reason that I feel like um, men and women, both of us as, as creatures are not separate from how we were raised. And a lot of men have the power or this ability for strategic reasons to compartmentalize. So they tend to leave things behind. And so there's that. The other thing I would say, and this is a common phrase I hear, is stop using the word change and start using the word grow. Hmm. I, not I want my husband or my man to change. That is emasculating, to be blunt. But wanting them to grow, that's love. Um, and so the idea of change, I understand it because especially if you're being, you're cre creating conflict or you're, you're creating some sort of, you know, emotional distress that to, to alleviate that you want your, your, your dude to change. But if women understood that we do want to grow most of us, um, and that we, that, that, that in the growing of us working on ourselves, we will then become 
the kind of man that their higher self, their higher feminine needs. Uh, but it can't be forced. It can't be behavior oriented. No. Uh, it can't be remedial. And I think there's a lot of that that happens. Of and again, I don't I don't know where, if it's social conditioning or genetic wiring of like the woman fixing the man. The woman, you know, she made me a better man. You know that kind of thing. It's like right. I appreciate the influence. I, I greatly appreciate the influence of Virginia on my heart and my social consciousness and my ability to have compassion. But the main inspiration for me to grow into the kind of man that she needs constantly is myself. That's right. I'm the motivator of that, often through remorse, like the power of remorse to be like, oh, I fucked that up. Totally. But it's not, I need to change because that's self-flagellating. It's I need to grow. Hmm, I like that distinction. Yeah, I think, you know, on the other side of the boy code, you know, you have the social conditioning that, you know, most females are caretakers, right? And so, uh, you know, a partner of mine shared with me once that, you know, most men come into a relationship with their heteronormative partner as either their mother or their mistress. And I just yeah. like, holy shit, it's a lot of, there's a lot to unpack there, but it, it made sense to me. It's like, you know, the mama's boy that, you know, still has, you know, his mom, you know, telling him how to coordinate his clothing, you know, into his, you know, or, uh, adult age or, yeah, just, hey, I need to be caretaken or my partner is just my object to fulfill my physical needs, right? And there's just so much more in a relationship, right? Yeah, totally agree with that. And I think that goes back to relationship, the relationship blueprint of understanding each other's relationship blueprint, because this is my working theory. I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. Sometimes my ideas break down under scrutiny. <laughs> is that if you have a mother wound, if you're a man with a mother wound, you will gravitate more towards anxious attachment. Um, but I have added an additional A. So it's AAA, mm -hmm. which is aggressive, anxious attachment. Mm -hmm. And that is the, and so the mother wound creates the aggressive, anxious attachment because the man is seeking retribution for the harm that was caused him within his relationships without consciousness is what I'm saying. Mm, yeah. And, and I think that, you know, you go the other way, the father wound, I think would create, um, you know, avoidant, more avoidant um, mm. tendencies. Uh, I could be wrong about all that, but I, I look back at, and I'm curious about your case too. It's like, who were good models for relating? Like where you looked at them and you're like, in hindsight, especially now that you're a relationship coach and you're like, was there anyone around you where you were able to look at them and go, oh, okay, they're kind of doing the thing that I learned in relationship school? That's no, a good question, Justin. I honestly, I, I can't really think of anybody. What's coming to mind is obviously my parents' relationship, which is still like they're just platonic roommates, you know, uh, generationally, I think, you know, this is what they're, what they're used to. But the couples, I think that if I were to say, oh, this is like the ideal relationship, I'm realizing that perhaps there's a lot of, I guess my in-laws, when I was married, I guess I'm thinking of them right now. There was a lot of acquiescing on my mother-in-law's part to my mm -hmm. father-in-law who wanted to, you know, he was the benevolent patriarch, right? So he wasn't abusive. He wasn't uh, overbearing, but it's like, they just had this very, old antiquated you know she'd make him a sandwich and clear his plate before he even finished his last bite 
and he went out and did man things. And so, um, but I think deeply, if you were to ask my ex-mother-in-law, how's your relationship? She'd probably tell you that there's like no intimacy here. There's no connection. We're just people taking up and occupying the same space. Yeah. And how old are you? I'm, I will be 51 next month. Okay. Well, pre-happy birthday. I'm 52. My theory with this, as far as models, because I didn't, my parents were, I mean, it was a disaster. And I've, yeah. I've talked about that and, you know, wildly incompatible. Um, my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, they had a good marriage by kind of old school standards. There was, you know, there was a lot of intimacy, a lot of like partnering. My granddad coming from, you know, born in 1919 comes, came from sort of patriarchal structures, but seemed to be respectful of my grandmother's being, you know, Mm -hmm. he didn't tell her what to be that I'm aware of. And she had boundaries and she would, you know, she was very sweet, but she was also, she had teeth, you know, and I, I, and so I did learn from that, but my theory, and the reason I asked your age is that Gen Xers, the, I, the modeling that we got of both men and relationships we got from, from TV and movies. And yeah. so we see like the Clint Eastwood and John Wayne, um, you know, th- that type of archetype of a man that's manly and only has two feelings, horny and, and angry, you know, like, uh, and so, and so, um, and then we get into the sitcoms and the sitcom era in particular, any marriage, I, I'm trying to think of a show that we would have watched up until say the, you know, the late eighties that where it showed the actual dynamic of a relationship. I think of like married with children. It showed a very sort of a humorous type of codependency Mm. Um, or, you know, the Cosby show, which is the sort of idyllic relationship. Yeah. And I think that put tremendous pressure on us, on men in our generation that, and, and it sent mixed messages of being, you know, the, the man with no name out, you know, looking for Mexican gold, right. Eastwood's characters, or you had to be like homebody, dad, friendly, you know, Mr. Brady. Um, Yeah. Family ties comes to mind. Family ties come to mind. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. So I think, I think that's changed with millennials. I've noticed, maybe you've noticed this in coaching too, that millennial men and women, but millennial men in particular seem to have a lot more of this shit figured out. And I think partially it's because the, they were raised by that generation in between Gen X and millennial. And they, they have, they have a, still have a very high, you know, in, in um, Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this um, a lot, this group of people that were born in like in 1960 to 1965, sort of post-World War II, post-boomer, pre-Gen X. They they have much like longer marriages. They are more inventive. They're more creative. You know, interesting. And and then you know so and then there's shows. You know, like even the way like I know it was a Gen X show, but it was watched by lots of millennials too. Was the dynamic between Chandler and Monica, mm. and that scene from Friends where they had their first fight, and he was like, "Well, I guess it's over," and and that was his relationship with conflict because of his relationship blueprint. Yeah. Or, or I think of um, modern family and the relationship between Claire and Phil was a much more realistic kind of relationship about what a real, like healthy marriage is like. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there are others, you know, that we could run down where like, so I think that's part of that influence. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I feel like, you know, um, Gen Xers have a lot of what I'm calling cycle breakers, you know, who are looking at their family tree, right? And going like, oh God, you know, grandpa or great grandpa was an ass kicker and, you know, or, or grandma just had no boundaries and just got walked all over. And it's like, oh, you know, I want right. something, my kids, my four adult children are 21 to 28. And I have drastically different relationships with my children than, than I have with my dad. I still don't really have a close connection with my dad. It's, it's still awkward, yeah. you know, even on a phone call. It's like, so. Same. Same. Yeah. Well, let's get, let's end with making it real personal. So what is something you've had to grow out of in order to be a better partner? Yeah. Two, that word. Yeah. Two big things come up for me. Uh, one of them obviously is, is just the grip of patriarchy, right? Like what that has meant, what that, how that impacted my life and then therefore impacted others' lives through my, you know, um, for lack of better terms, uh, lack of mishandling it because there's a really, it's a really a, an effective way of handling patriarchy. I don't think so. Um, so that's a big one. You know, I remember, uh, telling my, my wife, you know, when I was married, uh, it, so my father was a big yeller and I remember him always saying, well, my dad yelled and there was a, a kind of a really, uh, coming to Jesus moment in a, in a, in an argument with my wife, where I said those same words to my wife, mm. you know, well, my dad yelled and that's what I do. And I was like, Oh gosh. And and I still, I was actually just talking to my partner. We were on a trip last weekend. I'm just talking to her about um, those kind of moments that come up and they, they, they're like, they're like these, Oh shit moments. Like, God, I don't, that is not who I want to be, you know? And so you start the course correction, but Another one I would say um, is is nice guy, mm. nice guy tendencies. You know, um, read the book, went to a nice guy men's group for a while, um, and just kind of started realizing what that is. You know, I was a boundaryless, eggshell walking, people pleasing. Sounds like a rap song here. Um, <laughs> you know, I had I had I had all of the nice guy tendencies, and I still do. There's still remnants of those, and it's really great. You know, even going back to what you said with your relationship with Virginia, it's like you, when you have a partner that knows this stuff, there's, there's an ability, you know, when the safety is there to be able to challenge a partner, Hey, are you being nice guy right now? You know? And, and it's a really abrupt wake up, but it's like, Oh God, yes, I am doing that. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. So those, those are two big ones for me. Yeah. Two for me, one is, you know, my wounded child, you know, years of abuse and instability and all the things that lead to, you know, complex PTSD. Um, and if you're familiar with parts therapy or I have internal family systems, my mind made a part that I call the Viking. Mm -hmm. And that was my protector. And it had one boundary, which is don't fuck with Justin. And it was like that as a kid, I would challenge my mother. I'm like seven years old and I'm quoting the constitution to her saying that she'd violated my uh, right to due process and said that she'd be better off living in the Soviet Union. And I would mouth off to teachers. I would mouth off to bullies. I got my ass kicked so much because my, my impulse when cornered was to fight. And that part of me would come up. And I can tell you about like physical altercations I got into over the years too, that were like that just rising up. 
And I've always looked at that as a good thing mm. until, until within my partnership with Virginia over the past four or five months, I saw that part coming out in me. Makes me want to cry mm. with towards her. It's, it went from protecting us and the Vikings, a protector and look at him, look how manly he is to coming at her because of some things that she couldn't, she wasn't, wasn't responsible for. And it was all based off of fear, you know, fear, fear of the, the inner child, the wounded inner child feels fear and the Viking comes. That's their job. Yeah. So I'm in this sort of deep and painful transition away from like, I need a Viking funeral. You know, I need to light him on fire and push him out to sea because I don't need that anymore. Mm. And my identity as someone not to be fucked with is, is actually impeding or dragging down the velocity and quality of my relationship with Virginia. And that's a very painful thing when you realize you're with your person and it's a conscious relationship, except for the unconscious parts. Right. And that's one of them. And it's being brought to the surface. And she's experienced that in very emotionally painful ways. And I feel horrible about that. But it, it I'm being honest about my answer. You know, it's like that is that's some shit I had to leave. I had to grow. I'm growing out of. Um, and the coaching, the the coaching from uh, Fareshta and Julie and the stuff that Jason uh, Gaddis posts and writes about, you know, he's very generous with free stuff. Yeah. Um, it's all about building these tools or acquiring these skills so that I'm changing the norm of who I am under pressure. Because that's another factor. Pressure or stress is creates fear, which attract, you know, calls the Viking forth. The second one that I've had to grow out of is um I've had to grow out of um the story, and this is a story rooted in unworthiness, the story that I had to prove to Virginia that I was worthy of being loved by a woman like her. Mm. Now, there is an element of being grateful for that. Wow, I get to be loved by a woman like this, the most multidimensional person I've ever met. And um, I need to outgrow, and I'm still there. And this is where you know I'm. Uh, and I'll link to this in the in the show notes. But I'm launching or creating a, a support group for anxious men with anxious attachment tendencies. Is that that anxious attachment side of me, um, which is sort of a man version of a people pleaser, mm-hmm. is like I've had to. It's a it's a weird thing. Because the story that I've had for years is that you that that you were in a good relationship if you could be yourself. But to acknowledge that you have parts of yourself that you, you got to grow out of, yeah. Well, and this is this is part of that realization that I need to grow out of the part of me that feels like I have to be something else than what I am. And that's that paradox. On one hand, you really can't be who you truly are or who you, you know, be your real self or be you do you if you're not working on your shit and you don't have to be anything other than you are to be with the person you're with if they're your person. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. 
yeah, it's like a fine line between the two, right? What is what is um, especially if if the if the overarching goal is authenticity, then it's like okay, what is work that's necessary, and what is things that that are just how I'm wired, <laughs> right? Yeah. But I think one of the things as I was listening to you, and thanks for sharing all that, that was, that was beautiful. Um, at the relationship school, one of our hugest skills we learn is how you know we ask each other in any relationship how did that impact you and so i think even just going back to the topic of this discussion most men aren't considering how their actions impact another person right yeah yeah that's that's so profound yeah another one that is such a good point you're right like my whole thing for years as an as a kid as a teen i mean i got married when i was 18 and built this life with lena that was essentially protecting me from all the things that hurt me until she came out and the, you know in our marriage you know wound down over, over five, a five year period and all of that like pain started to come out again because the incubator was broken and yeah so that that really that really speaks to me. I think that the bridge between these, this, in this paradox of being yourself, but not too much, and you don't have to be anything different than who you are, um, is that there is a best self. And I know that sounds cliched, but I wrote about it and this is, uh, being recorded on May 1st. Well, it'll air in a few weeks, but, uh, the today, this week's essay is called me at my best. And it's an acronym I created for best. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think the, aspiration of men and women too but this is about men in intimate relationship that there is a there's a place where we're at our best yeah. where we have all of the good elements of the divine masculine and and being a conscious uh per, you know protector of the of the of the relationship and working on yourself and and uh, basically you could say it's the higher self but Higher self is a place you go up to and you come back down from. You just based off of, you know, you can't stay there. Right. Best self, best self is my theory. And we'll find out if this is true, is that if you keep the conditions, and I write about the conditions I need, if you keep keep the conditions that produce the opportunity to be your best, the, your best, then you can do that in perpetuity. And there's no need to ever engage in your relationship, the dark parts, the protector parts of yourself. Hmm. that's my theory. Wow. So we'll see. Yeah. I look forward to reading that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation as I expected it would be. Um, I'm going to link to your website um, in uh, the show notes and you're actively looking for clients, right? I am. Yeah. Are you, do you prefer to coach um, couples or individuals, or does that matter? So, so I'm currently, you know, I'm certified to work with individuals. That's what my, um, you know, nine month training was two years ago. I'm actually currently in another nine month training at the relationship school to, um, learn how to coach couples. So technically, yes, I will still take couples coaches right now. I actually have a practice couple, um, um, client, uh, that I'm working with now at the school. But um, yeah, I, I I feel like a lot of the skills you know work into uh, work into both um, both areas of individual and couples. But cool. yeah, all right. How long do you typically like? What's a usual length of engagement for you if you're working with an individual? I find that at least six sessions. 
You know, I okay. think, you know, every other week, I think is, is, a, is a really good schedule. You get some time to integrate, you know, what you, what we've discussed, what, uh, what skills I may have shared with you and, and, you know, and basically taking it back to the dojo of your relationship. Right. And like, let's see how it worked out. And then Frank, coming, back, coming back into the space. Right. Dojo um, of your relationship. That's a money phrase, man. That goes into your, yeah. should, right in your brand language. Actually, I think, I think Jason Gaddis actually uses Dojo. Oh, damn it. I'll, that guy. I'll, I'll give him credit I for keep, that. I keep, I'm watching all his videos. I'm, Virginia, I'm reading his book. And, and I keep, I keep waiting to dislike this guy. I know, I, right? And I, he seems like legitimately cool. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Anyway. I've got to spend well, time with him in Boulder. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, he, he's a good, he's a good guy. I mean, I'm just glad what he's bringing to the world. You know, right. so many people need relational help and yeah. And there's like, yeah, there's the Gottman Institute and they have a bunch of stuff and Esther Perel, love them. But yeah. man, the stuff that he does is so practical and yeah. so simple. And no one is really learned. No one learned that. Maybe, maybe I watch my, my son, Logan, and my, my daughter-in-law, Sarah, raise uh, Fiverr and Maven. And they are being equipped, Fiverr in particular, because he's two, two, two and a half years old now, but they're being equipped with these skills right now. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I saw firsthand, you talked about, you know, we're um, cycle enders in our generation. Yeah. The, the kind of men that my sons became, that's who I want to be. Right. You know, like the way that they live their lives and carry themselves. And this is an this is what happens when you're encouraged to be yourself in a non-trauma based environment. You grow into something um, beautiful. And I and so I'm very hopeful for the future where I see the way that millennials and now some older Gen Zers are raising their kids to be more inclusive and to be more socially conscious, but also to be like more autonomous and, mm-hmm. and, and learning how to feel their feelings. Totally. Um, it's one of the greatest gifts a woman can give her son is teach, teach your son how to feel his feelings Absolutely. more so than the dad. Yeah. I think that dad can teach how to manage your feelings. So how to harness your feelings, but the mom, man, there's something about that. And I've witnessed it with Virginia and Andre, you know, seeing this quite emotionally mature 14 year old, which, you know, those, those, that sentence usually doesn't go together. You know, those words don't generally go together. Emotionally mature 14 year old right. boy. Right. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. All right, my brother, I say that in a non-Mormon way. This was great. Um, and uh, I look forward to our next uh, visit where we're not recording it. Hey, sounds good, Justin. Thanks for having me today.